Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and a warm welcome to Money Talk on the final day of the week. This is Peter Lewis. We're currently one of the top ranked finance and investment podcasts on Apple Podcasts in Hong Kong. So thank you for listening. We're also on Google Podcasts and Spotify. And if you go to peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, you'll also find my daily newsletter, which contains a lot more business and finance information to go with this program. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Here are the business and finance headlines for Friday the 2nd of June. U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is racing to push the debt ceiling bill through the Upper House of Congress by the weekend. Mr. Schumer said Thursday the Senate would stay in session until the bill was approved to stave off a historic U.S. default. China's factory activity rose above the 50 mark that separates growth and contraction in May, a private survey showed on Thursday. The Kaishin China General Manufacturing PMI unexpectedly rose to 50.9 in May from 49.5 in April. Outputs rose the most in 11 months. New order growth was at a two-year high and foreign sales continued to increase. However, employment fell at the steepest pace since February 2020. Retail sales in Hong Kong grew 15% in April from a year ago, marking the third straight month of double-digit growth. Retail sales grew by 21.7% in the first four months of this year, compared to the same period in 2022. The increase was driven by a 75% jump in sales of jewellery, watches and clocks. The US and Taiwan signed a new trade deal on Thursday under a framework for talks between Washington and Taipei called the US-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade. The framework aims to strengthen economic ties between Washington and Taipei and open Taiwan to more US exports. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lun, the CEO of GEO Securities, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Staten Advice. US stocks closed higher Thursday on debt ceiling optimism and falling labour costs ahead of today's jobs report. Stocks rallied throughout the session after the US House passed the debt ceiling bill and it's largely expected to pass through the Senate as well. Equities were also supported by a Bureau of Labour Statistics survey which showed unit labour costs falling to 4.2% from 6.3% a month ago along with a soft ISM manufacturing survey. Both the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 closed at their highest levels since August. The S&P 500 gained 1% to finish at 4,221. The Dow traded up 153 points or half a percent to end at 33,062. The Nasdaq Composite added 1.3% to end at 13,101. And the Nasdaq is up nearly 1% week to date, putting the index on track for six straight weekly wins. That's a streak not seen since January 2020. US Treasury bonds rallied as Fed officials continued to push the idea of a pause in rate hikes this month. The yield on two-year notes fell five basis points to 4.34%. The 10-year yield dropped four basis points to 3.6%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell 17 points or 0.1%, close to a six-month low of 18,217. The city's benchmark index is just 1% away from falling into a bear market, defined as a drop of 20% or more from its recent peak. 
Futures markets are predicting a strong start for the Hang Seng this morning with a gain of 350 points. That's 1.9%. Mainland Chinese markets were flat with the Shanghai Composite at 3,205. Elsewhere in the markets, the US dollar index fell 0.6% to a weekly low. Brink crude oil settled 2.3% higher at $74.28 a barrel, and gold futures rallied, briefly topping $2,000 an ounce intraday. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Welcome our Friday morning guests. We have with us Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Morning. And also with us is John Schofield, who is Managing Director of Tempus Investment. Morning to you, John. Yes, hello. Good morning, Peter. Now, China's factory activity rose above the 50 mark that separates growth and contraction in May, a private survey showed yesterday. The Kaishin China General Manufacturing PMI unexpectedly rose to 50.9 in May from 49.5 in April. Outputs rose the most in 11 months. New order growth was at a two-year high and foreign sales continue to increase. However, employment fell at the steepest pace since February 2020 and sentiment slipped to a seven-month low with lingering uncertainty, particularly from overseas. Now, those figures contrasted with official figures Wednesday that showed a further contraction in activity among larger state-owned enterprises. So, Francis, what do you make of this divergence? Well, I think the uh, smaller enterprises are doing much better than the state-owned enterprises, I think, uh, what the figures tells us. And, and also that the uh, eco- economy is uh, staging a uh, uneven recovery. And, and, and I think uh, still uh, the government tried to push up, uh, drive up uh, uh, consumption to boost the economy, but I think uh, in this respect they are not really uh, achieving their goal. And of course, uh, uh, the Chaising uh, PMI showing growth is a good sign because that shows the uh, export uh, uh, sales are improving, especially for the small manufacturers. So uh, uh, it's, it's a mixed uh, picture, but, but still it's better than every, everything's for dropping like a rock. This is a combination, I think, of the cyclical cyclical forces and uh, and also the sec- secular issues that China faces um, and um, we have you know happen to have uh, uh, bad news on both fronts uh, recently um, particularly commodity prices sliding um, you know un- uh, employment is, is declining and um, there's also yeah, it's right that the uh, Sales are picking up, but um, at, at a cost. Uh, there's an awful lot of uh, uh, discounting going on. Um, there's a price war in the, um, you know, the pivotal uh, solar panel business, for example, which is, you know, um, very destructive of, of uh, shareholder value. Mm. Well, Francis, you mentioned that the government is um, is trying to boost consumption. Yeah. What they seem to be doing is talking up consumption, but not <laughs> actually enacting any policies to go and boost uh, consumption. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. I think uh, I, I think uh, they should f- uh, follow what Hong Kong did. It's giving everybody five thousand uh, dollar consumption voucher uh, and they spend it. Uh, uh, that that uh, uh, throws something like uh, thirty billion uh, Hong Kong uh, dollars into the retail economy. 
I think uh, uh, it is what what the economy said. They're throwing money yeah. from the helicopter, and if you have uh, uh, your your domestic demand is lacking, so give people some money, let them spend, and they will boost the economy. And and, and I think the uh, the policymakers in China just haven't been decisive enough. They are letting the economy slowly slowly sink, and that, that is not a good sign. I think the Premier Li Chang has to do a better job. You're, you're the second commentator this week on this program to say <laughs> consumption vouchers are needed to join boost consumption. John, are you going to be the third one? Would you would you concur with that? Um, I don't feel qualified to talk about that really in in the context of mainland China. But um, um, do you think yeah, that works small, here? That, what I would say, um, I think so. I think well, you know, it helps. Every little helps. It's just. Um, I think the problem in China is the feel, you know, that you've got to get the feel-good factor back somehow. Mm. And, um, you know, despite the reopening after COVID, I, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's, really, uh, it's really back yet. Mm. Mm. You can't get you the feel-good ba- factor back when um, 20, over 20% of, of youth under yeah. 24 are unemployed. That's going to be yes, tough, isn't it? No, absolutely. So we've got to find ways of... Um, of stimulating uh, the right kind of industries, um, you know, rather than you know, property. Uh, forget it. Um, yeah, they're they're asking the <laughs> they're asking the young people to go back to the field and then farm yeah. and produce more yeah. corn and soya beans, so that so that the uh, China does not have to rely on the U.S. for soya beans. This is not what common prosperity was supposed to look like, is it? Uh, uh, sending no. sending qualified graduates back to work on the farms and yeah, the, back, the villages. back to the sixties, fifties, and sixties. <laughs> so, what would you both like to see then the government do to try and boost the economy? It seems to be quite widely accepted that economic growth on the mainland is disappointing. Um, at, at the moment, so although there has been a rebound since it reopened, it hasn't been anything like what people were maybe expecting at the beginning of the year. And there's signs, as you mentioned, Francis, of it being an uneven recovery. Mm-hmm. Services are doing better than manufacturing. W- what would you both like to see um, the government do to try and rectify that? Concrete policies that they could take rather than just talking? Yeah, for, for decades, the, the government has been depending on fixed asset investment as a drive, uh, as a, uh, a, a, a driver of the economy, but it has not worked now because uh, the real estate market has uh, 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 cratered, and uh, all over China there are still many, many unsold flats. So they cannot uh, uh, use uh, just build buildings to boost the economy, mm. and uh, 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 for the manufacturing sector, global demand for consumer goods are falling. Despite the fact that China has become the number one car exporters in the world now, that's really surprised me. It just surpassed uh, Japan to become the biggest car exporters. But other than that, but for other manufacturing goods, I think uh, uh, demand is lacking. So, so you're left with the on, only only thing uh, in the economy which which is uh, consumption. Mm. So I just mentioned before mm. that uh, just give people some money to boost the economy. Otherwise, other than that, I don't know. Uh, I, 
I, I hope the government has uh, be, uh, better policy thinkers. But the, the problem is, it's you can't just rely on exports, can you? And particularly if the uh-huh. US slows and slips into recession, then China's going to be hit um, badly. It's got to have other things. But the risk, I presume, is that it just slips back into the old ways, which is infrastructure investment, building more roads and railways and bridges. That seems to be, in the past, the easy thing for it yeah, to do. But that's counter in, uh, counterproductive because when you talk about the high-speed railways, I think only three or four are profitable. The rest mm. are all losing money. It's a severe cash, cash strain on the economy. John, what would you recommend the government do if you uh, if you could sit down with uh, with Li Chang and yeah. uh, and talk him through you know some of the policies? What would you say? Um, well, I think they need to revisit this. Um, you know. Um, Crackdown, crackdown, if you like, on the private sector, particularly in the in the, in the technology areas. Mm. I mean, this is where you know we see it every day now. This is where U.S. U.S. economy is really, um, you know, really coming back very strongly, driven by the, the new wave of technology. And um, <clears throat> I don't think China can achieve it through, you know, diktat by instructing semiconductor companies to innovate. Um, you know, you've got to you've got to unleash the people's uh, creative uh, creative powers. Um, I don't know exactly how you go about that, but I think um, you know the 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 Alibabas and the JD dot coms and, and, and all these other companies ought to, ought to be the engines that are driving um, the, the you know yeah in, increased consumer uh, cons- consumption and so on. Um, what was interesting was Jamie Diamond is in Shanghai at the moment for um, a JP Morgan banking conference, um, and he warned yesterday that uncertainty over the Chinese government's policies could hit investor confidence. He told Bloomberg TV in response to a question on China's crackdown on the tech sector and on consultants, if you have more uncertainty, somewhat caused by the Chinese government, it's not just going to change foreign direct investment, it's going to change the people here and their own confidence. Now, this is interesting because he's really quite um, (laughs) laying the blame for the economic woes at at the door of the Chinese government. Now, I suppose if anyone else said that, they wouldn't get away with it. But it is Jamie Dimon. But is he right? That was the point I was just making, except he makes it far more eloquent. That's for sure. Yes, I I forgot about that. I mean, the consultant... I mean, talk about sending mixed signals. How can you... it, the, the, as I understand it, the, sh- the consulting industry is basically the Sherpas for foreign investors looking to come into China, you know, doing the due diligence on the ground and advising, advising how to do so, you know, in a, you know, as risk-free manner as possible, uh, or lower risk manner as possible. I mean, if you if you um, if you just decide that soft limits, then then how, how on earth are you going to attract uh, foreign investment? Mm. Yeah, well, uh, uh, the tech sector has been the uh, a, a driver for uh, the economy for the past uh, decade, actually. Uh, uh, Alibaba and Tencent, all these companies hire uh, tens of thousands of fresh graduates every year. Now they're firing people. That's why you have 20% unemployment on the youth. So if, if you don't have people hiring people, how can you, your economy improve? I think, I think this crackdown on big tech has gone too far, too far, far too much, and it, it has hurt the economy now. I think right now it's, it's 
the right path is for the government to re- reverse course and then try to help their big text to re- restore confidence so that they can hire people, they can go back on the expansion trail again. Do you, do you think the government is getting that message? It seems to send mixed signals, doesn't it? Because the Premier seems to be business-friendly, but this week um, President Xi Jinping has just talked more about national security yeah. um, and how much the Communist Party must dominate everything in, in China, but nothing about the economy, nothing about youth unemployment. Yeah, definitely. If, uh, 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 the Communist Party is more important than your parents. Mm. So it's not going to get the message then in that case by the sounds of it. And even if Jamie Dimon's right, it may be falling on deaf ears, that Mm -hmm. that message. Certainly. Let me turn to the the equity markets in Asia and and how they performed in May. There was a big, big theme, wasn't there, in May, which was um, a decoupling of the major Asian markets away from China. Equity markets in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, India, all put in a strong performance in the month of May. And that's attracted the attention of global investors while Chinese stocks flirted with a bear market. Japan was the month's standout performer. Um, the index was up 7% overall in May. South Korea's Cosby put in a positive performance over the month, rising 3% uh, in May. The Taiwan Stock Exchange weighted index rose 6% over the month. And Korea and Taiwan have netted at least 9.1 billion US dollars each this year, which is reversing outflows from last year. And also in India, foreign funds have helped drive the Nifty 50 index to less than 2% away from an all-time high. So first of all, let me ask you about these other Asian markets uh, away from China. Why suddenly all this attention on particularly (laughs) Japan, South Korea, Taiwan and India? Well, I think th- th- this is basically the uh, U.S. Uh, initiative to uh, to gather the uh, uh, democratic countries in Asia into a, an alliance, at least an economic alliance with the U.S., so that they they help each other's economy, and especially for Japan, Jap- the Japanese market has soared to a 33-year high. Wow. Back to 1990, that was, when I was living in Japan in those days. That's That's how long ago it is. So uh, uh, still, uh, China is still mired in recession because of the severe lockdown due to the COVID crisis. I think uh, China will take some time to recover. John, how do you explain the performance? Is it something to do with particularly countries like Korea and Taiwan? They're obviously the world's, they have some of the world's leading chip makers there, and that's been a big theme, hasn't it, for, for almost yeah. all year? I mean, that's certainly uh, certainly one, one, one factor. But to some extent, it's just the flip side of, you know, money flowing out of China. Um, where, where are they going to put it? And... Um, you know, those are the obvious. I mean, in, in, India is, you know, has been the, the darling of emerging market investors for, for quite some time. Actually, I mean, it's been going sideways in, in recent months, but it looks as though it's going to going to take off again. Um, the Japan thing is is obviously the most intriguing, but because uh, there's a sort of confluence of, of factors there, um, but. Primarily because there, there's, uh, you know, people perceive there's a lot of value in, in Japan. The stocks are still uh, still very cheap. And that's because, um, you know, corporate governance in Japan has not been uh, not been suitable for for uh, Western investors for, for some time. But that's changing. Um, they're certainly getting, uh, even though, even though you don't have rapid growth, uh, certainly in in in, 
in the domestic market in in Japan. There's um, there's plenty of room to get more more cash out of uh, out of the great majority of um, of uh, Japanese in, industrial companies. Uh, and don't forget, they're um, you know they do have a second to the U.S. Really, a very powerful array of um, of uh, manufacturers in in all these uh, new technology areas. And of course, there's inflation is back in Japan, which traditionally is actually good for equities, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes, because uh, you know, used to, they used to simply translate. Uh, translate earnings uh, the dollar earnings overseas into into yen and as, uh, if the yen is weaker then obviously um, as it has been um, that's uh, that's the other factor to bear it bear in mind of course mm. um, if you're unhedged if you're unhedged you haven't made anything like the the gains um, the gains you've made in, in yen terms uh, by investing there but um, yeah I think I think that's the you know Japan is still a very high, you know, has a very high level of government debt, you know, the highest in the world by far. And you know, you see Americans arguing about having just over a hundred percent, I think it is. Uh, where Japan, it's, it's double that. Mm. Um, so you, you, inevitably, there'll have to be a change in, in monetary policy. Um, they're obviously being very, very cautious about how how to how to do that because the. The potential, the cost of much higher, you know, interest burden on on government debt uh, is uh, is something to be borne in mind. Do, do you think, Francis? You know, last year, if you weren't in China, really, it was hard to find anywhere else in Asia to go. But right now, mm. there seems to be a number of attractive alternatives. Yeah. Japan has finally taken off. Um, some <laughs> other markets have caught fire as well. Is that one of the reasons why Chinese equities are doing so badly? That it's sucking they, those markets are sucking money out of China. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the zero uh, COVID policy really damaged the, uh, China's reputation among the business world and all of a sudden uh, you cannot produce anything from China because China has been the uh, factory for the world for consumer goods and now you have a, such a uh, dramatic stop uh, in 2022 so, so, so I think naturally uh, uh, the multinationals will start thinking <coughs> to move some uh, uh, production out of China, and, and that cause has a rippling effect, and and it has rippled through the economy. In that uh, production is down, and that employment is down. Mm. I think China will really have to do a lot of things to restore the manufacturers' confidence, like uh, like Apple moving part of the production to India. Now it's difficult to get. Apple to move the production back because mm. they already done so. <laughs> so this is irreversible, really, and it's uh -huh. going to increase, isn't it? Apple's yeah. already talking about more production in places like Vietnam and India as well, so yeah, this is definitely. not going to go in reverse. Mm. But is the worst over? Do you think the bad news is now fully priced in? <laughs> we hope so. Otherwise, we, we we won't be doing any business in the equity market. Mm. We, we, mm. We'll be sitting for uh, dead phones every day. Mm. <laughs> My my guess is that um, probably we're yet to see that sort of final capitulation, sell off, um, um, and I think that, um, but it sh it should happen within the next, um, you know, say by the by the start of the fourth quarter, you know, seasonally typically we would expect to see some sort of upturn. That might, that might be um, 
that might be something to watch on. Just on the Apple, I did know, I did read something today that, that Apple is actually um, going to expand its uh, sales network in in in, uh, in China and is mm. opening a lot of new shops <laughs> in various places. So oh. so um, you know, that, I mean, to me, that's the China's failed so far really to move on to the next stage of uh, economic development which is from you know from being manufacturing and asset fixed asset investment oriented so, to consumption i mean the consumption the percentage of consumption is uh, sorry consumption as a percentage of gdp is still far far lower than the west so what's the catalyst going to be that will get foreign investors back because they've been pulling out and a lot of them have said to me they just can't see a reason to be in china yeah. at the moment what what could be the catalyst that would change their minds and say okay now is a good reason to start reinvesting in chinese stocks well that's difficult thing to do because the, all, all these things really is caused from the top from the central government uh, the institutes to the policy that's really uh, put a premium on security and loyalty, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you don't give the like a big tech companies the free reign to do mm-hmm. what, whatever they want. Then then you you only have a command economy. You don't have free market forces working. I, I I think the the first thing government need to do is let the market run is uh, do do the things themselves instead of regulating mm-hmm. and 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 then and then uh, have the visible hand uh, withdraw the visible hand uh, from of the government from the businesses. Mm. I mean, John, one of the differences between Japan and China in terms of markets is in Japan, there's been a change recently to try and focus on shareholder value. The government's mm. been pushing it. The Tokyo Stock Exchange has been naming and shaming companies that hoard cash. So as a result, they've started to do yeah. share buybacks, pay higher dividends. Whereas in contrast, I think it's fair to say in China, um, the, the Xi Jinping government is a particularly concerned about enhancing shareholder value and they certainly yeah. don't like the idea yeah. of profits being paid back to shareholders if that was to change could that be maybe a catalyst but it is a stark difference isn't it that maybe could explain some of the difference in performance yes i mean it's been a long time coming in japan people have been you know hammering away at that for a long time with the, these activist funds and so on but uh, finally yes as you say a, a consensus has emerged in japan that this is the right way to go and uh, you know, it, it coincides with some other some other factors, and that's that's why we have a uh, a nice bull market going on there. Um, China, as I say, it's hard to say what would be the catalyst, but I mean, you have a you have a stock market uh, sell off, and then uh, which happens to coincide with some sort of pivotal event. I don't know. I mean, uh, perhaps uh, perhaps uh, a new a new um, agreement with with the US or or, or something like that, a a new approach. uh, Well, that's one of the things that foreign investors are saying is a a deterrent for them, these uh, geopolitical tensions. Uh, Yes, clearly. Well, as Francis has just uh, laid out, you know, all these, the the difference, you know, we now see very, very stark and very clearly the difference between a top-down command economy and a a bottom-up entrepreneurial uh, capitalist-led economy. Do you think, Francis, that it could happen? Do you think there could be a focus on sh- enhancing shareholder value in China? Uh, don't hold your breath on it. <laughs> but, but if you look at the financial f- firms uh, like the banks, insurance companies, they, put, they pay good dividends. 
Yeah, mm. except that the prices uh, don't really go up at yeah, all. Yeah, there, there has been this boost to state-owned companies, hasn't there, yeah, in, in, yeah. in the markets? The government's been trying to promote banks and other state-owned firms, but mm. presumably that's only got a short shelf life. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, thank you both very much. Great to hear your thoughts. Have a good weekend. That was Francis Lunn, who is the CEO of GEO Securities. John Schofield, who is Managing Director at Tempus Investments. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is Director at Staten Advice down in Australia. Morning, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with Australia because there was some inflation data out this week. Consumer prices rose by more than expected um, in April. The monthly consumer price index rose 6.8% compared with 6.3% in the previous month and market forecasts of 6.4%. I, so, the, I get the feeling that the Reserve Bank of, of Australia is being twisted and turned at the moment. On the one hand, it's, you know, it's signaling a pause because it thinks uh, inflation may have peaked. And then you get data like this, which suggests not... Not yet. That's too early. Yeah, it, it reminded me of uh, a little bit of, um, for those listeners out there who know cricket, and I don't want to draw too much of an inference to cricket, but often when you're batting with a partner in cricket, it's often yes, no, wait. Um, when you're looking to take a run, um, and often you can get run out when you get those uh, communications. So a bit like the Reserve Bank at the moment are on a bit of a yes, no, wait when it comes to rate hikes. Uh, they paused uh, in April, then hiked in May. Uh, and now the uh, inflation figure at 6.8%, which is above the 6.3% on a year-on-year basis, um, you know, is, is well too lofty for them to be able to ignore it. Uh, but at the same time, they might try and pause on the basis that some of the other data that they're seeing is flat, like retail sales being flat for mm-hmm. the month. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we're in that yes-no-wait uh, type scenario. Um, one of the things about the inflation number that should um, yeah, should be noted is that there was an impact of uh, the auto fuel excise uh, tax, and that had a big impact in the previous April. So the base effect of that coming out probably pushed the inflation number up a bit higher. But still, even in an underlying basis, it's very, very much um, uh, too high for the Reserve Bank when you've got a 2 to 3% target over the medium term. Um, yeah, it almost forces them into making another move next week. Mm. And, and I suppose a lot depends also um, on what the Fed does, doesn't it? And, and they're also in a, a tricky position. They're also being pushed and pulled in, in different directions because the, the, the data, one hand, starts to suggest maybe things are stabilising a bit. And then you get another piece of data like we had with the JOLT survey this week, which uh, suggests the labour market is still tight and there's still wage pressures there. Yeah, and we'll see that tonight, I guess, with the non-farm payrolls to see how those numbers come out in the US. Um, actually, we're having the discussion this morning about, you know, the, the the likelihood that it's possible next week that the Australian rates will go up and, and the Fed will pause, which may be not priced in as, as significantly vis-a-vis the currency. So, you know, looking for trading ideas, we're thinking, well, maybe the Aussie gets a bit of a bounce on the basis that the Reserve Bank might be likely to hike and the Fed could pause. Um, having said that, it's... Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's a tricky time because you know the Fed may still feel the need, uh, given that uh, some of the employment data is still strong, um, to pause, uh, sorry, to hike. Uh, whereas, if you look at the Purchasing Managers Index and the Economic Activity Indexes, and I look at the ISM last night out of the US, and also the Chicago PMIs, they're really weak. Um, so, you know, it's possible the Fed are seeing the opportunity now to pause and see what happens. Whereas in Australia, the Reserve Bank 
may be forced into moving because inflation's so sticky. Mm. And if you listen to these Fed speakers, the, the message they seem to be giving is that even if there is a pause this month, it's not the end of, uh, of rate hikes. There could well be more to come later on in the year. Yeah, and if you have a look at the futures curves, um, you know, there, there's still some of out to next year looking at rate cuts. Um, and I think if, if, if one area of the curve you probably ought to be considering in terms of futures markets is that you know, even if they pause, I can't see rates coming off in a hurry unless um, there is a you know, big decline in economic activity and therefore a deflationary impact of that much more aggressive than what the market is probably perceiving and what the data is suggesting. So, yeah, it's a tricky time, I think, to, to, to see what the Fed will do. And it's, uh, it's going to be interesting, uh, that decision, and also here in Australia, what the Reserve Bank do next week. And is that going to be the focus now of, of investors, now that these debt ceiling um, discussions seem to be fading into the background? You know, people are hoping that the Senate's going to pass this bill by the weekend. Um, the focus now is very much going to be on the economic data and on the Fed and whether or not we're going to see further rate hikes this year. Yeah, I think that's a, that's that's a fair point. And have a look at volatility. Went to eighteen month lows overnight because the debt ceiling is off the table. That was trending down prior to the debt ceiling becoming an issue. You've also seen bond yields go, you know, twenty basis points weaker post this uh, week um, after you know squeezing up into that uh, concern. So yeah, that that comes off the table. Now we get back to economic data. Now we get back to the Fed. Um, we're going into the summer months in the uh, northern hemisphere. That adds another factor where we'll see uh, lighter activity, but uh, potentially more volatility on the basis that uh, liquidity is not going to be there. So, yeah, it's an interesting time coming up. OK, well, let me turn to another country that you know very well, India, your, your former home. Um, we had GDP data out uh, from India, grew much faster than expected the economy um, in the first quarter. It expanded 6.1% year on year. Uh, that's higher than an upwardly revised 4.5% uh, in the fourth quarter of 2022, well above market forecasts of 5%. And then for the fiscal year, which ends, or which did end at uh, the end of March, India's GDP grew 7.2%. Um, that was actually slower than the previous year's expansion of more than 9%, but nevertheless still beat um, economists' expectations. I mean, uh, Toby, India, the economy there, it, it really is outperforming, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, interestingly, it's a function of um, a lot of the last 10 years of reform that's come through India and, and some of the benefits of that starting to flow through. Um, a huge amount of government expenditure in terms of driving infrastructure and then private capitals coming in behind that to create some momentum. I think on the private consumption level, India is still a little sluggish uh, and there's potential for that to, to pick up. So um, if you look at the I think they, yesterday they had a global S&P global PMI, manufacturing PMI for India was at 58.7. We'll compare that to, you know, the US ISM at 46 and the Chicago PMI at 40 uh, and China just getting maybe just over the line at 50 on, um, you know, India's real, well ahead of the race in terms of activity. And I think it's structural to a large extent and likely to continue. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's some, some real tailwinds for India it's not going to be simple because it's a massive country. Still, a lot of um, uh, you know difficulties around uh, managing that economy. But um, 
yeah, a lot more tailwinds than headwinds, you'd have to say. Mm. And, and it's attracting the attention of, of foreign investors, particularly because of that point you make about consumption. There seems to be a lot of potential, doesn't there, for a pickup in consumption. And also consumers are moving up the value chain as well. They're buying, you know, more higher end uh, and products that presumably could be a big driver of the economy going forward. Well, I think if you, if you look at some key tailwinds uh, over the medium term in India, manufacturing will increase as a percentage of GDP, um, which is important, not only for jobs, but also uh, for the economy. Exports will grow um, at a higher rate in terms of market share to the world. Um, consumption, as you mentioned, will shift as incomes rise. So consumption patterns will change. Um, inflation will become less volatile. India's always had high inflation, you know, 6%, is fairly normal for them. Um, but with interest rates uh, uh, at five, uh, sorry, inflation around five percent, interest rates at at six point five, you still got um, real uh, positive interest rates versus negative interest rates elsewhere. So I think the cycles will be less volatile as you go forward, as the economy matures, and then over time they'll be less reliant upon the major import, and the major risk for them is oil, uh, as they develop more renewables, as they develop more capacity in in uh, onshore capability of energy uh, generation. That's another tailwind that will, you know, emerge over the next decade or so. So when I mention tailwinds, they're the sort of tailwinds that India has. And notwithstanding that there's political risk and notwithstanding that there's all sorts of other risks associated with India because it's a large, large democracy, um, you've got to say that, uh, yeah, on balance, um, you're bigger, you know, you're more inclined to back India than not. Mm. And, and let me ask you then about the markets. There's been, I would say, two big themes, haven't there, in the, in the month of May markets. Firstly, out here, actually, which is sort of the decoupling of some major Asian equity markets from China. Um, foreign investors have been selling China virtually, well, they force some of the indices into bear markets out here. And instead of looking at markets like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and India as well, India is only the nifty 50, only about 2% away from an all-time high. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea uh, is back in a bull market uh, in Japan. We're back to 1990 um, highs. Um, but at the same time, you know, you look at the Hang Seng, uh, just 1% away from being in a bear market. And the H-share index of Chinese listed stocks here in the city is already in a bear market. But what's driving that? Um, because it's very noticeable, isn't it, now, the difference in performance between China and some of these other Asian markets? Yeah, I think there's just a level of concern that, China's not getting the the bounce post COVID that the market had priced. Um, you know, the uh, the uh, if you look at the main indicators, you know, they they certainly got some, but they haven't really ripped out of it like a lot of other countries did with that pent up demand coming and throwing flowing through to economic activity. So, I guess that's the that's the hangover, mm-hmm. um, if you will, of, of a much deeper, strong, longer COVID restriction. Um, the expectation was that, you know, uh, and um, it, there is indications it's emerging, but it's not driving out. Uh, there's not, not the expect, you know, not the expected rush of activity and demand and spending that uh, maybe we all expected once China lifted its restrictions. And I think that's probably reflected in the, the way the market's pricing, um, not only China, but also, you know, obviously uh, Hong Kong. Um, yeah, I suspect that that's, that's the main driver of it and they're concerned that, that you know, China's not going to get the big bounce that everyone expected. Um, maybe it'll just take a little longer because they were much deeper in the weeds when it came to the COVID restrictions mm. for much longer. So possibly that'll just take a little bit more to get the, the momentum. 
And, and presumably, if you're a foreign investor in, in China and you're one of those that's been pulling out and, and selling, suddenly you have some alternatives in the region. I mean, Japan has suddenly caught fire, hasn't it? Whereas it's, it's been in the doldrums for just years. There's been plenty of false dawns in Japan that haven't really worked out. But maybe this time it, it feels like it might be different because you've got inflation coming back. You've got the government focusing on shareholder value, trying to get companies to pay higher dividends and do share buybacks. This is, seems to be be noticed now and of course you have the Warren Buffett effect as well yeah I think in that sense uh, I think Japan yeah I would have thought that maybe a year ago people were worried about Japan um, in terms of you know failing to get that escape velocity from its def- you know 20 year deflationary uh, environment but it seems to have kicked a bit now and uh, as you said there's there's good signs in relation to to that escape velocity that they've been looking for and uh, investors are jumping in on that Um Still, a, still not quite convinced, uh, but yeah, little way to go there. But uh, you certainly said the signals. I think the other thing you make a point about China is, yeah, uh, there is pivots. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's the China Plus strategy in India. You know, India is now benefiting from potential uh, foreign capital coming in as a as a as a pivot against China, or at least a balance against China, not to get out of China, but to maybe rebalance. This is a, true for Vietnam, uh, Indonesia's economy uh, doing well. So. Yeah, I think if you're chasing foreign capital and foreign capital is not as confident in China, it's going to find plenty of places to to, to go. And, and I think that's probably maybe in all the maths around why the underperformance of Hong Kong and, and Chinese equities may be that as well, is that the, demand, you know, the appetite for foreign capital to come in is less because the alternatives are better. And of course, the other theme is this big uh, surge in AI-related stocks um, around the world, which is presumably one of the reasons why South Korea and Taiwan are both performing, because they've got leading chip makers there. But also in the US, we've seen NVIDIA. Uh, it's almost worth $1 trillion now. Is this a frenzy? Is this, Or is this something that is really, there is a real change going on in the tech industry that's justifying this sort of euphoria? Well, I don't know, to to be brutally honest, whether that's in fact the case. But, uh, yeah, clearly, you know, I think the NASDAQ was up 6% in May, um, mm. mainly driven by this AI tech boom and, uh, you know, the new growth story, if you will. You know, the, the established uh, growth stories around the, the um, you know, the Amazons and uh, Facebooks, et cetera. You know, they've moved on now to the new tech. Um, so maybe we are seeing another, you know, not so, you know, another drive on in that type of growth. Uh, stock in AI, so um, don't know enough to be able to give you a, a good call on it, but uh, certainly watching it closely. Toby, thank you very much indeed, and have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is director at Staten Advice. Thank you for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and David Friedland, Managing Director of Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. Have a great weekend. Money Talk 